turn there, I'd like to pray for us. I just want to, as we lead into this passage, let you know this is a very uh, deep and rich theological passage. And um, really, uh, of passages I've preached over the last year or so, this is one I've wrestled with a great deal leading into this morning. Because there's a temptation we could get too bogged down, temptation we might not understand what the heck is going on at all. There's a lot of things going on in this passage. And um, my desire is that we come away uh, transformed. That God speaks to our hearts and our lives today because I I believe this is a very, very important word and passage. So just pray with me. Lord, we thank you this morning, and I pray that Spirit of God, Spirit of truth, that you would be here in our midst. I confess now, Lord, my inadequacy and pray that where I am weak, you'll be strong and that you would move among us in might and in power today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's obvious to me that as you examine the Word of God, that you come away with this truth that man and woman, people, were created for relationship with God. I mean, why else would God create us? He did not need servants. He had already made the angels. They are much more capable, they're um, more powerful, so to speak. He He didn't need us to serve him. He created us in order to be in relationship with us. He wanted someone to love and have fellowship with. That's why he created Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And he created them as free beings. This is always one of the great theological complicated questions is why did God make man and woman in a way that they could actually choose to go a separate direction from relationship with God rather than force them to be in relationship with God? Well, I think we could all realize that no one is really your friend if you make them be your friend, right? If they're forced to be your friend, they're not really a friend, they're a a slave or a servant. So God, in his sovereignty, chose that he would create man and woman in a way that they could choose to love him and serve him. They were placed in a garden, the Garden of Eden, where they worked. But their work was not labor in the sense of we think of work. Because creation had not yet fallen, creation worked with them, to love God. They were in perfect relationship with one another. They were in perfect relationship with God. They were in perfect relationship with the created order. As a result, they were resting in their work. There is a fulfillment in what they did that goes beyond what we think of as rest and work. Because we only know work since the fall where everything is working against us, it seems as if, to make things really hard. Our relationship with God was shattered. Our relationship with our spouses, with one another, was shattered. Our relationship with the created order was shattered. And as a result, man has always been looking for a position of confidence or rest. Adam and Eve, when they fell, the first thing that happened to them in the Bible, which is really remarkable if you think about it, the first thing that happens when they eat of the tree that they're not supposed to eat of is what? They, they, they know that they're naked. I mean, isn't that kind of a fascinating part uh, to think about? The first realization that comes on them is the shame of their position of having no clothes. Uh, I think there was a lot of other things that could have entered their minds, but this is the first one. As a result, they get some fig leaves, they cover themselves up with these fig leaves, and then when God comes looking for them, they jump in the bushes to hide. And ever since then, I would contend that man has been ashamed of who we are and where we are, and we look for fig leaves to cover our shame or bushes to hide in. Now, we may name them different things, 
We may name our fig leaves money or work or status or family or relationship or something else, but those things that we try to hide and really those things that we use to try and cover our shame and bring significance to ourselves are the things that we gather around our lives. And I would say to you this morning that they will never answer the deep cry of your heart. Here's the question that the author of Hebrews is trying to answer this morning. Is peace or rest even possible? Can we have peace and rest in this life? Or are we condemned to wait for rest till we die? And the best that we can do right now is cover ourselves with fig leaves or hide in the bushes. I would say this morning that many of us are naked and in the bushes. Rather than covering ourselves with the glory and peace and rest of the Lord. And we can hop around from bush to bush, so to speak looking for some hiding place that makes us feel more comfortable, but all it is, it's just a bush. It's just a tree. It's just a shrubbery. It's not going to answer the cry of your heart. You can move from relationship to relationship. You can move from job to job. You can even move from church to church. But you will not find rest for your soul if you don't know where rest is really found. I want to get a running start on chapter 4 by backing up and looking at chapter 3. Chapter 3, not the whole thing, just part of it. Kind of what we read last week. Here's verse 16. And he says, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God, now listen to this, and to whom did God swear that they would never, what? Enter his rest. This is going to be the theme of the morning, entering rest. Enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their, what? Unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Once again, we have this key word, therefore. Therefore, based on the preceding chapters, this this study in Hebrews, I don't know if you noticed, it is building in intensity. I should go building in intensity. It's building on foundations one after the other. We're not even close to the punchline yet, to where he wants to take us. But if you don't get where we are, you won't be able to build on it for the next passage and then ultimately where he's taking us all. And every one of these foundational truths is critical to who we are in Jesus Christ. I don't want to review the whole thing, but back in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, in these last days, which we now live, We're all in the last days, and we have been ever since Jesus Christ first appeared on this earth. In these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is the final and fullest, most complete revelation of God to humanity. He's fully God and fully man. Therefore, he's able to do only what God can do, and Because he's fully man, it means that he can relate to us in every way. He can help us because he knows us. He loves us as brothers and sisters. He leads the way out for us to follow. Therefore, chapter 3, which we looked at last week, therefore, having Jesus is enough, but we've got to make sure that we guard our hearts We help each other. We stay fresh in our relationship with God so that we don't become like who? Like the Israelites who saw God, heard God, were with God, didn't believe, questioned God, lost themselves, did not enter God's rest, and died in the wilderness. They didn't get to go into the promised land. They they didn't get to enter God's rest. And then in chapter 4, 
Therefore, building on what's been said, what they missed out on, we can still have. What they didn't get, we can get. Anybody here this morning need some rest? Well, two things. One, maybe we need to understand what rest really looks like. And number two, we need our faith level to rise above our fear level and unbelief level. Hebrews 4. I'm going to read the whole thing. 4, 1 through 13. Follow along. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who believed, who have believed, enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for everyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. After reading this passage, I think you're probably struck by two things. Number one, rest is really important. Number two, I have no idea what he's talking about. I mean, it gets so complicated, you're not sure when you read through it. I mean, it's even hard to follow just the reading of it. Because he's making all these analogies and illustrations from the Old Testament time. So we're going to try and unravel it as best we can in the short amount of time that we have. And I'm again skimming across the surface of a very rich, deep theological passage. But hopefully by the end we'll come away with a, an idea of what rest is and how we, how we receive it. First point is this. We need to aim to enter God's rest. Aim to enter God's rest. Verse 11, he says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. The aim of life, according to the author of Hebrews at this point, is to enter God's rest. To be saved from our broken relationship with God, which comes by God's grace, and to spend now and eternity with God in his restful presence. It's a great goal of life. And with it, to lovingly take as many people as we possibly can, get them into rest now and in the future. But what is this rest that the author is talking about? Remember that the author of Hebrews is speaking to whom? He's speaking to a group of Hebrews, uh, people from a Jewish background who have become followers of Jesus Christ. And as a result, as he speaks to them, he's speaking to their language and he's speaking their background and their understanding. In other words, it would be like, oh, I don't know, it'd be like me writing a letter to a church in Alabama and talking about, 
I know using an analogy of the Crimson Tide or War Eagle or something that we know, but somebody else may be not so much on. They'd have to study to get the background in order to understand the context and the meaning. And so he just makes like one-line references to things they already know. In the synagogue liturgy of worship, they would gather together and they would read almost every time they gathered together two passages, Psalm 95 and Genesis 2. Psalm 95 are the passages he's been quoting in chapters 3 and chapter 4. And Genesis 2 is the truth that on the seventh day, God rested. So remember that when the Jewish people would gather together on the seventh day, the Sabbath, they would read these two passages about Sabbath rest from Psalm 95 and God resting. So when he's referring, he's quoting these passages, which they've heard probably every Sabbath for their entire life. So where he knows, it'd be like, me, me writing a letter again to Fullness Christian Fellowship saying, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or even imagine, because you've heard it every week for years on end. You've got that kind of in your head, so you can kind of get that reference. That's what he's writing to. So let me look at uh, the references he's making, and I'm going to do it not in chrono- I'm going to do it in chronological order, not in the order that he refers to them. So the first thing he does is. He talks about God's rest after creation. God's rest after creation. In Genesis 2, the passage where God created the heavens and the earth, on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. There is one unique thing about the seventh day that's different than all the other six days. And I don't know if you remember it, but on the seventh day, there's no reference to evening. There's no end. First day, God, morning and evening, it was the first day. Second day, morning and evening, it was the second day. Morning and evening, third day. Seventh day, God's rest, there's no end. In other words, the seventh day, as God created it, and for his purposes, he, he, he was finished. He finished his created order, and as a result, he rested. He did it as an example to us to rest on the seventh day, to take a time of Sabbath rest, but he also did it to declare he was finished with his created order. Now, this is complicated for us because we don't know why God even needs to rest, number one. Number two, Jesus says that his Father is at work throughout all eternity, even to this very day. But the idea is that that God rested in the sense that he saw his creation and he said it's good, it's finished, and he was able to lay it down because he was pleased with it. Second reference he gives is the promised land where Moses leads the people up to the promised land. The Israelites come out of Egypt, they go through the wilderness, they come up to the promised land at a place called Kadesh Barnea. They send the 10 spies in, 12 spies in, 10 come back and say, hey, we we can't do this. Big people, we look like gnats, they look like giants, they get walled cities, no stinking chance. Two say we can do it. They don't enter the promised land because of their unbelief. And as a result, a whole generation of them has to die in the desert. Then he also refers to the promised land after Joshua took them in. They come back 40 years later, Joshua takes them in, they conquer the land. But, again, according to the author of Hebrews, they still don't receive rest. Why? Because they never really walk out the plan that God has for them. So physically, they're in the promised land, but spiritually, they're still following their own hearts, doing their own deal hiding behind their own bushes, building their own fig leaves. They're still doing their own thing. Then he refers to the kingdom under David. He says, quoting from Psalm 95, though we really don't know who Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews, attributes it to David. He says that that psalm looks ahead prophetically at a time when there will be rest, that The implication being that the kingdom under David, they still don't have rest. 400 years after they've entered the promised land, now the land is uh, united, they have a king, 
They have a tabernacle. Eventually, they're going to build a temple under Solomon. And still, for that entire period, no rest. Why? Because, again, their hearts are hard. But the implication is there is coming a day when rest will be today. He then refers to, he doesn't call it the kingdom of God, but he's referring to the kingdom of God. Though not mentioned, the real implication is that the today, and capital T, today, mentioned in this passage, occurs when Jesus comes. Looking at chapters 1 through 3 and then what follows, it can't be missed. That his reference is to that when Jesus comes, now, today has been released on the earth. We have the opportunity to enter God's rest. When Jesus from the cross cries, it is finished. Once again, the work of God is complete. The redemption of mankind has been opened. The kingdom of God is is here. Verse 9, he says, Therefore, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Who are the people of God? Those who are followers of Jesus Christ. He's not referring to the Jews. He's referring to the people of God who are followers of Jesus Christ here. Then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For everyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. If you take all of these pictures together, you realize that the rest that he's talking about is a a joyous, satisfying, working rest. That we, it's a position of us, we who follow Jesus Christ by faith. We have the ability to have rest now and rest for all of eternity. Not rest in the sense of a lack of struggle or a rest of in that we won't work, but rest because we have confidence in God. In other words, going back to the premise of this entire series, Jesus is greater than my work. Jesus is greater than my sin. Jesus is greater than my unrest, and he can provide rest for my soul. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. And you will find what? You'll find rest for your souls. Not just rest when you die, but rest for now. So there's an already rest and a not yet rest, like there's an already kingdom and a not yet kingdom. We receive a measure of God's rest. How do we get to this rest? Well, to enter, we must trust God. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be to be found having fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Trust here, as I'm putting it, is synonymous with faith. It moves beyond mere belief, like mental assent, as we define it, and it combines it with me. Here's how I like to define faith. Faith is belief plus yourself. Belief plus yourself. In other words, it's not enough to just say, I I believe that Jesus, Jesus is Lord. You have to really walk out the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. That's what faith is. That's what the gift of grace, that's when faith and grace are activated, is when you do participate with him. Do you think the nation of Israel, those, those people in the wilderness, do you think they had any question that there was a God? I mean, they'd been through it. I mean, they'd seen him deliver them from Egypt. They'd walked through on dry land. They'd seen the, they could just look at the pillar of fire and the, the manna in the wilderness and everything going on. Oh yeah, there's a God. There's a God. Okay, now let's go take the promised land. I don't think so. I don't think God can do it. In other words, they believed in God, but they weren't willing to put themselves in line with God. And as a result, they had no faith. And the author of Hebrews says, as a result, their bodies were scattered through the desert. The issue continually 
in the Bible is an issue of faith. You may think that faith is just a New Testament concept, but that, that is not true. Paul in the book of Romans, some of you knew I was going to get here at some point, uh, Paul in the book of Romans makes it clear that this has always been an issue of faith. As a matter of fact, he uses Abraham as the example. Abraham believed God, and what did God do? He credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham was made right before God as a result of faith. The just shall live by faith is the book of Romans. Theme of the book of Romans. All the Old Testament, all the New Testament, it's about faith. Belief plus yourself. Example after example after example in the Old Testament shows us a people who believed but didn't put themselves into it. As a result, they did not walk in faith. You may say that you believe God, but if you don't act on that belief, then you'll never truly enter the rest or relationship or place that God has for you. Eugene Peterson, in a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, I I just like that title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says this, It is not difficult in our world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain that interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Belief plus yourself. Trust. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Third point, to trust God, we must hear God's word. To trust God, we must hear God's word. So, we need to aim to enter God's rest. To enter God's rest, we have to trust God. To trust God, we have to hear his word. For we have heard the gospel preached to us just as they did. We've received the gospel being preached to us just as they did. Paul, again, in the book of Romans says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? Hearing is very important. Living out your life as an example before people is critical. Living the gospel out, but at some point, the gospel has to be proclaimed. It has to be spoken. It has to be heard. Now, for something to be heard, two things have to be taking place. Someone's got to be speaking, and someone's got to be listening. It's not enough to just say it. Someone's actually got to be hearing. One of the things we've done in premarital counseling for years is this active listening technique, trying to have couples say what they desire and then for the other person to repeat back to them, how many of you have been through premarital counseling with me and Kathy or me and Cheryl? Wow. And I was going to say something sarcastic, but I won't. We, we always do this where we do this active, this speaking and hearing thing because you'll be amazed how many times a person says something and the person who's supposed to be listening doesn't hear what's being said at all. So we have them say something back like, well, what I hear you saying is this. And a lot of times it's something like this. Um, I wish and would like for us to spend more time together. And the person over here says, so what you're saying is you don't like me. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. You know, we, we don't hear what's being said. We filter it through our own I hate to go back, keep going back to naked in the bushes analogy, but we we hear it through our own shame. We hear things through our own hurt. And as many times, we don't actually hear what's being, what's being said. I could give you 10 examples from my own family life this weekend. Um, my wife would probably appreciate it if I didn't. Um, but it is 
it is difficult to both speak and hear. You hear tone, you hear past, you hear stuff, rather than really hearing. We need to both speak and hear God's word. Here's the question. What are you listening to? What are you listening to? What are you giving place to in your life? Listen, is it not hard to hear all the stuff the world on a 99% basis and then try and filter it out and come to the 1% of hearing from God? Because what we've heard over and over again is a different message. And anytime we hear a word that's different from God's word, are we trading up or are we trading down? We're trading way down to receive the word that the world speaks to us. The two examples he's given here, by the way, are profound. The first example is Adam and Eve in the garden. Serpent comes to them and does what? Speaks a word that has a little bit of the truth of God in it, but it's mixed with error. And as a result, which word do they go with? They go with the word, we're being shorted here. We, we don't get, we, God's, he's, he's got something, there's something different that God's holding out on us about. As a result, they receive that negative truth, you're a perfect whatever you are, God's holding out on you, just live your life in whatever way you want to live it because God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? No, God wants you to be in relationship with him, and in relationship with him, you will be happy. You will find rest. The happiness that you pursue, hearing the word of the world, will never lead you to rest. It will never lead you to true happiness. As a result, they trade down. Israelites, hundreds, thousands of years later, come to the uh, promised land of Kadesh Barnea. 10 verses 2, 12, the 12 spies go in, come back. 10 say, no way, can't do it. 2 say, we can, Joshua and Caleb. The people are swayed by the majority, which to me shows majority is not really necessarily a godly way to rule, but it worked, you know, whatever. In any case, God's word stands supreme. What word are you going to receive? What word are you going to walk in? We need to hear God's word. And we need to make sure that there are times when we are filtering so that we don't mix the world's word with God's word and come up with a mess. We need to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. Fourth and final point. To hear God's word is a work of grace. To hear God's word is a work of grace. Verses 11 through following. Let me see if I can hammer this home. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Okay, we got two paths, right? We got the path of obedience leading to rest. We got the path of disobedience leading to death. Okay, who wants to be on the death road? Anybody say, oh yeah, that sounds really good to me. I'm going to go disobedience. I'm going to go to death. Well, I don't think anybody's going to sign up for that. Everybody wants to follow, right, the, the road of life, the road that leads to rest. I mean, at least to me, that sounds much more appealing. How do we get there? Well, buckle up. Because the passage you've heard all your lives really brings it home that many of us have memorized. And it's this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The author of Hebrews brings it together in this majestic passage that we know. And my temptation is to take it apart word by word because it is so glorious, but I, I want to see it in the context of what we're talking about this morning. We want to make every effort to enter into this position of God's rest. How are we going to do that? Well, the, the Word of God is how. 
The Word of God is active. It's living. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. He's really saying, look, you didn't do anything to deserve this Word. You can't earn this Word. You can't get this Word. This Word is given to you as a gift of God's grace. All right, I want that, right? I want the road of life. I want to enter God's life. So what do I got to do? I've got to submit my life to the sword of God. I've got to allow his sword, this double-edged sword, to penetrate to the deepest part of my life to remove what's at the very core of me, the shame, the sin, the hurt, the thoughts. I've got to to submit my life to the sword of the Word of God. Truthfully, most of us don't really want that. We want to add God to our existence. I got a pretty good life here. I think I'm a pretty good person. I got a couple of issues. God, I'll give those to you. But the rest of me is pretty good. I just want to add God to the 5% of my life that's missing. Listen, that is not the path to rest. The path of rest is saying, God, take your word, let it penetrate to the very deepest part of me. Let the sword of the word of God find exactly what needs to be cut away from my life, the sin of my life, the disobedience of my life. I submit myself to the word of God. Listen, we love this passage for the word of God is active, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We, yeah, there's power in the word, but we don't really understand the implication for our lives to say this is gonna cost me. The word of God, the scripture, the word of God in Jesus Christ come to us by grace. And it's a mighty sword that has two edges. Nothing else can do in our lives what the Word of God and the Scripture and the Word of God and Jesus can do in our lives. Nothing else. We'll never find rest for our souls if we go to any other source. It is so powerful. Nothing in all of creation can hide from the Word of God. Adam and Eve were naked and in the bushes, trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. This passage says that everything and everyone will be found, and it's really the way it's read. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. That means everything is naked before God. Everyone is naked before God. Whether you want to be or not, that's where you are. He sees it all. A couple of years ago, um, I was trying to think of an illustration, and I'm, I'll try to share this with you, but just as an example, don't... I, I, I've got a lot of places on my back that I thought it would be good for a dermatologist to look at. I wanted to go get a checkup and make sure that some molds on my back had not changed. I can't see back there. Uh, so it's always good to have someone else look at the, the mold. So I set up an appointment with the dermatologist, and they said, hey, do you mind if you see a woman? I said, no, it's my back. What? It's molds on my back. Big deal. I go in. I go into the uh, examination room, and they say, okay, take all your clothes off and stand over here. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I want some molds on my back. Well, we're going to give you a whole checkup. Now, I... I was not very comfortable with this situation. I, I just want some moles on my back. I didn't want to be there. I mean, it was, it was very uncomfortable. This woman with a magnifying... Uh, and you're kind of... You know what I mean? I, I mean, you're just... She's like this far from me. I'm embarrassed just talking about it. (laughs) Listen, that's where we are before God. I mean, nothing is hidden from his sight. Everything will be uncovered. 
And we, I mean, I had a choice. I could say, no, you know, no, we're not going there. Or I could say, you know, what if something's wrong? I want it to be found out and I want it to be taken care of. Listen, we have to quit hiding in the bushes, covering our shame with fig leaves, and stand naked before God and his word with a living, active sword ready to lead us into a position of rest. Amen? If you want rest for your soul, there's no other path to get there. The other side of the sword, by the way, is the judgment of God. Is the judgment of God. The nation of Israel comes up to Kadesh Barnea. They say, can't go in. God says, okay, 40 years. This whole generation has to die out before you can go in. Well, that's the judgment of God. Because they refused to walk in the grace of God. See, God's grace was there to say, I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to deliver you into this land. Yeah, you're right. You can't do it. They are giants, and their cities are walled. Their, their observations of the circumstances were entirely accurate. They couldn't do it, but God was going to do it for them. All they had to do was join in with God's word and believe God's word and in faith walk out God's word, and he was going to give them the land, an act of grace. They refused. As a result, they got the judgment of God, which was they were thrown into the desert. And I don't know if you remember the story, but after God says, okay, you guys are going back in the desert and you're all going to die this whole generation, they revote. Hey, we're going to go. We've changed our minds. We're going to go on in. And God says, "Ah, go on, but I'm not going with you. So a big group of them go in. And they are annihilated by the Amalekites who live there. Because God's presence wasn't with them, they experienced, really, the sword of God. And this is the second picture that's here. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. This term laid bare, and I know this has been a tough week for things like this, but it is the symbol of of, of bending your neck back to expose it to the sword of God's word. A position of total vulnerability. This is the way they would sacrifice their animals. Bend the neck back of the animal, cut the neck of the animal. And it's the position that we are before God. We are naked and exposed before him to say, take your sword and do with me as you desire. We stand at the point of receiving God's word by grace or by judgment. And at some point, we'll receive one or the other. By grace, you stand before him and say, this is all, this is all, I want to trust you, God. I want to walk this out in faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let faith rise up within me. Let every step of my life be in accordance with your purpose and your will. Here I am. I step out in faith before you. The other position is the position of judgment, which says, I'm not going to receive the grace of God. I'm going to walk it out myself. I'm going to use my own fig leaves. I'm going to find my own bushes. I'm going to hide. I'm going to cover. I'm going to try and not let anybody see the real me. Never will you find rest in this position. But here, I think you can find rest now and forever. Not a rest that says your circumstances are all going to be good or everything's going to be right or nothing will ever go wrong. But even in those, you'll find rest. Because this kind of rest is a joyful, sustaining Working rest of confidence in God. Do you want the confidence of rest in your life? I, I would say you can have it. This rest that's offered to us before by God comes by faith and grace, hearing the word of God and let it penetrate all of our lives. This morning, 
I want to pray for us. Because, see, I, I was going to give an altar call about this, but here's my belief. We all need this. I mean, really. If everyone wasn't at the front, there's something wrong. Because we, we have to be reminded about the grace of God. We have to be reminded. Because if not, we default to go and to find fig leaves and bushes. That's just our default position because shame is always crouching at our door. The enemy is always right around the door uh, trying to give us another word from God. That's not a word from God. That's going to lead us to a place of shame. And we always need to stand and say every day, by your grace, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. Thank you, God. Let me stand in your grace. Let me rest in your presence, both now and forever, forevermore. Stand up with me and let me pray for you. I will ask this, with your eyes closed, if you just need this, you know you do this morning, there's just a restlessness in you, and you need the rest of the Lord just that position of joyful, confident, working rest by the grace of God. Just hold out your hands before the Lord and let me pray for you. Lord, I I pray for those. I pray for all of us this morning that we will stand before you, a living God, with a living and active word. And I pray, God, that you would take the sword of your word and penetrate to the very deepest recesses of our lives to cut away the hurt, the shame, the sin, the things that are not of you. Let our lives be laid naked and bare before you. Now and every moment from now, so that we who are the people of God will find rest for our souls. Lord, I pray that everything else that raises itself up against the name and the word of God would be cut off in our lives. Lord, for some of us who are working so hard to try and find significance in our lives, I pray, God, that that would drop by the wayside and we would rest in you. For those of us who have turned to other sources, things that would even lead us to addictions in order to find some sort of rest. God, I pray that that would be cut away from our lives, that we would know that no thing can ever bring rest to us apart from you. Lord, for those of us who are hiding from others because of shame in our lives, we just have cut ourselves off from the land of the living, really. Lord, I pray that we would receive your grace today and step out in faith and know that we are covered in the glory of the Lord. Touch our hearts, touch our lives, move among us today. You are the everlasting God. Our hearts may grow weary at times, but we'll renew our strength in you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you leave, we're going to worship God through the giving of an offering. So you can sit back down. I just wanted you to stand as kind of a, an act of prayer. If you're here and you're a guest this morning, would you please take out the white card that's in the uh, seat back in front of you or in the... Um, worship flyer, fill it out. And if you have prayer requests, go ahead and put those in. Um, This morning, if you're a regular attender at Fullness, you know to put those prayer requests uh, in and that we pray for those every single week. We're going to worship God through the giving and offering. Before we do, Rich has a couple of important opportunities of service to share with you. Then we'll worship God in the giving of an offering. Thank you. A message... uh just breaks your heart for those who don't know Christ. Um, tonight we have Alpha, and it's a place where people can come and learn about Jesus in a safe environment 
um, in a loving environment. And it's tonight at 6 o'clock in Fellowship Hall. If you know anyone who doesn't know Jesus, please take some time today. Shoot them an email. Give them a call. Um, shoot them a text, whatever it is. Just invite. Do your part and just invite and let God take it from there. And uh, we trust that one night of Alpha will be so convincing that they will stay for the rest of the time. Tell them just one night. Just do it tonight. Free meal. And um, I think we'll be surprised at what the Lord will do. So, Also, um, in your bulletin, you will see a, um, a note about the Thursday Bible study that's starting, the women's Bible study. Please check the details there for that. Also, we've got a new lost and found table in the mailroom. Please go by there. In a couple of weeks, we're going to give it all away. So if you have something there, please take time to go by and get it. And um, on the way in, you guys might have noticed a subtle change in the foyer. Anyone? Maybe? Um, Elizabeth did an awesome job turning our foyer into a warm place. Uh, It's always warm, of course, but just more of a homey place. And today, after church, our home group leaders will be out there anxious to tell you about their home group. If you are not in a home group, please Take a moment, go by, and just connect with some of the leaders. Find out what each of these groups are about. And then once you find out, ask the Lord, where do I go? Where do you want me, God? So that this could be uh, a place that is even more unified than it is right now. As, as a body, we pull together tighter, that we see each other and live life with each other and grow with each other. So that's uh, something that I hope you guys will take a couple minutes to do. So let's worship the Lord through the giving of an offering. Your name. 